Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Letter Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss the developments in dance music in the first decade of the 21st century, including the beginnings of dubstep, grime, and breakcore. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll? That means I'm joined by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And I forgot to introduce myself. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're reading the book by Simon Reynolds. Ryan, I've blown everything. Save me. (laughs) Oh, you were doing okay. You managed to get most of it in there. We're doing Crisis and Consolidation this week, which is the kind of interesting tacked on uh, chapter to the revised edition. I think there's two or three different revisions that that have gone on. And this is, I think, the second revised edition chapter that was tacked on at the end to deal with everything that happened from like 2002 to 2008 or something like that. That seems about right. And it's interesting, you know, he's got hundreds and hundreds of pages about rave culture's first decade and shoehorns the whole second decade into one not totally short chapter, but not a super long one. But maybe that's justified because Reynolds seems pretty frustrated that there wasn't a lot of massive innovation going on in this period. Yeah, I think the big issue is that 2000 to 2010 was a bit of a I, you know, it was a, a consolidation is a is a, is a great name or in, inclusion in the chapter name because that's really kind of what was going on is that we had all the blueprints for all the different genres of music and people were doing you know interesting things inside of all of those but you weren't having these historic moments like you were with the birth of house and techno and everything else like that and and he actually kind of breaks down the the interesting stuff that was going on in 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 dubstep and bass music. And, uh, you know, touching a little bit on what was going on in the house scene and the techno scene. So he did his best to kind of find those those little historically relevant points. But for the most part, you know, the there, there was things going on in the grander scheme. But, you know, the underground just chugged along through this entire period of time and did what it does, which is just put out good dance music that people enjoy dancing to. Uh, you know, what can you talk about that? How can you make a dig really deep, dig your teeth into, you know, something like that? It's, it's a bit harder to do because it's not as tangible as any of the other, uh, you know, momentous events that we've been covering in the book. It's, it's true. And Reynolds, Reynolds starts out with a little self-flagellation because he ended the original book, uh, arguing that, you know, this was in the 97, 98 period when Big Beat was big progressive uh, trance and progressive house were were uh, bubbling or you know coming 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 on strong, and and he said you know we're in a little bit of a lull. This is 1998, but but he argued the forward surge will soon resume. There's still frontiers to conquer, and then 10 years later he comes back and says that turned out to be wishful thinking. What happened is, and I'm still quoting him. What happened is the scene got. Even bigger, but the music stayed stuck. Its development arrested when the boom turned to bust and the music went underwent a kind of implosion. And then then he says, dance culture reached its absolute peak in popularity and mass cultural hegemony from 1998 to 2000, which turned out to not be correct. Reynolds was talking in a period when the music economy was in a serious lull because of the switch over from CDs to MP3s which weren't being paid for by anybody for most of the decade. I think it was 2007 by the time iTunes finally came online. Yeah, Beatport only started in 2005, iTunes in like 2007. So 2000 to 2005 saw the complete collapse of vinyl music sale, a vinyl label. So it's like a black hole that swallowed up this massive segment of dance music revenue. And, uh, you know, you you really can't, uh, like, you that the effect that that had on everything was in, was intense. So there was all of a sudden like half half the money 
basically disappeared. Or more, because the clubs closed too. The magazines, several of the big magazines went out of business. Um, in many towns, you you lost the super clubs and the scene moved down into bars, which we'll talk about, which means the massive, great dance music sound systems were suddenly gone. And it's, you know, it's very hard to pull off amazing dance music without amazing disco sound systems. So a really interesting period here. And Reynolds... Um, I think does 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 his best. I think he does a good job of describing what's happening, but um, he tries to identify a couple of scenes to focus on as sort of the hub of innovation. And micro house and break core are the two sort of subgenres that he really fixates on. He talks about some other ones, and we'll get to those. But is it fair to say? that you know the guy who zeroed in on dark core and and was was hit to the birth of jungle before it happened that and named many of these genres we've talked about that he didn't necessarily have his finger on the pulse in this period as well as he had or there wasn't he was looking for new developments in a period when there weren't big exciting new developments going on is that fair to say yeah where the consolidation was basically you know trance techno and house fusing and 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 morphing and and spitting out a hundred different uh genres that were that were not maybe doing anything completely revolutionary but they were taking interesting elements from from all the different uh you know big three and and mixing them together into new and interesting things and uh, the micro house, uh, that was one of those ones where I kind of looked at it and, oh, I have not heard this term. And I had to go back and look into it and figure out what he was talking about and where it all trails towards. And at first, I, I thought that you were right. There was a, this was a bit of a dead end that, that nothing really happened out of. But the truth of the matter is micro house kind of leads into what's called melodic techno now. And, uh, you know, some it's some of the biggest stuff. There's guys like John Hopkins who are big purveyors of this. This is the continuation of that electronic listening music techno kind of thing where you've got uh, you've got slowed down techno beats. It's no longer they're not going for that big chugging, big sound system crash, boom, move your feet type stuff. But they're they're more creating these really interesting sonic uh, soundscapes. And uh, they've got the fidelity and the technology to to really make some interesting things for, say, the iPhone generation, listening to this on their headphones and stuff like that. You know, it, it was a move from the dance floor, maybe the, the outer dance floor into the inner space of people listening to these things at home on hi-fi systems and in their headphones a lot. So micro house may not have been a term kind of like dark side that, that a lot of people are familiar with, but it did roll on and... Uh, and and you know there's a lot of uh, train spotters that you know there'll be micro house tunes in people's sets and stuff like that but it's not it's not really a dance scene thing it's definitely more of a it's definitely a little bit of a fart sniff a little bit amongst <laughs> uh, amongst the people who are who are more into the underground dance sounds fair enough i think that's a reasonable assessment and and definitely that was a period when people were withdrawing inward. They were putting on their headphones. You know, it's the post post dot com recession, post nine eleven, war on terror. It was a great time to put on your headphones and tune out the world. Um, and there was a lot of sadness people were dealing with, uh, for sure. But Steph's telling me it's time to play our first snippet, and this is Max Walder's Samba del Costa. Max Walder's Samba del Costa. Why'd you pick that one? I just wanted to, you know, I was really looking for something that represented the 2003, 2004, 2005 kind of timescape. So I went and I started going through a bunch of like Carl Cox's mix and a couple of the DJs mix and, and Samba del Costa kept on popping up. And this is an example of tribal techno that you would hear at, at, a, at an after hours underground club in, in pretty much uh, any, any major city. There was this really big chugging techno sound that was going on. And it's a perfect example of something that's not reinventing the wheel, but God damn, does it make you move? All right. And 
in some of our discussions back and forth as we prep for this episode, I thought you had a good point that one thing Reynolds doesn't talk about in this chapter, and he does talk a lot about a lot of the important stuff, but one thing he kind of leaves out, he does mention the superstar DJs are still big, but I think he kind of understates how big they were, that that Carl Cox and Ferry Corsten, Armin Van Helden, DJ Tiesto, Richie Houghton, Sven Veth were all rocking through this whole period. They were playing big shows. They were still big attractions. And they were changing their game and mixing things back and forth and and kind of leading the way in this in this breakdown of genre distinctions that that you know you get trans DJs playing house and house DJs playing techno and et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of a blending together of that whole thing. Um yeah, you had some. You had a little bit of movement. There were new faces and new scenes, and and obviously some new smaller genres coming in and stuff like that. But for the most part, it was familiar faces. The same people who were at the top of the game in 1999, 2000 were still there in 2006, 2007. So there was, uh, and and they were kind of staying hip to whatever whatever the newest sound was. This is this is that time period where again you've got techno DJs just playing everything, and on on one night, you know. At the beginning of the set, they'll they'll be playing the most banging of techno, and then halfway through, they'll start swip, switching into some some more you know uh, sensuous house sounds and stuff like that. So it really is an all sound across the board thing that everybody was kind of messing with, and uh, the the big the big name DJs just rode that and, and just followed whatever the trends were to stay relevant and on top of of things. And I think that's an interesting distinction between a DJ driven music like EDM and band-driven music like rock and roll that we've seen in the past is that for somebody like Carl Cox or Richie Houghton, who, you know, has been in the scene for a while, since you're a DJ, it's relatively easy just to play the new records and keep up, keep your sound fresh and updated in a way that's uh, more difficult for somebody, say, like Pearl Jam, who can't, you know, couldn't just come out and start playing Slipknot songs during this era um, to try to stay hip. Although I would love to have seen that. <laughs> but, um, and Reynolds has this thing where he sort of sums up the ages of dance music or rave culture, as he calls it. And he's kind of arguing that it it reprised the evolution of rock and roll, but in a more compressed time frame. So what took rock a decade to do, dance music was doing in five years. So he's saying that from 1988 to 1992 was kind of like dance music 60s, which was the starry-eyed euphoria of a culture's extreme youth uh, and then 93 to 97 is like the 70s, which is darker, but still a rich period of genre fragmentation, increasing complexity versus rene renewal via reduction, which is kind of the punk rock uh, ethos of going back to the basics. Then 1998 to 2002 is the 80s self-referential and auto-cannibalizing period, which is kind of what we talked about last last week with Electro Clash and the whole 80s revival. And then 2002 to 2007 he describes as kind of like a 90s, which is the post-postmodernism, rich in invention, but no clear direction forward. Yeah, I kind of I kind of see that. Like, I, I like how, you know, there's uh, the first time I kind of just uh, read this on, on the casual, I kind of felt that he had written off a lot of, of stuff. But he, he he caught on where he said it's it was rich. You know, he gave it its due. It's rich in invention. Things are going on. But no one's reinventing the wheel by any means. At this point, it's kind of like the car design. It's uh, it, it's it's it, it looks how it looks, and and you can you can mess around with you know uh, the dashboard and a couple other things. But no one's no one's making like a a weird new future car at this point. Which is kind of weird because the technology had changed quite a bit. You'd gone from say self-contained drum machines and synthesizers and sequencers to everything being on the PC for the first time. And you had the first digital turntable emulators that worked effectively. So there's some new technology going on, but its effects are kind of subtle rather than sort of dramatic changes like you had when, say, the 303 bass machine came out. Yeah, you can you can go a lot deeper, like with the micro house sound, where you can really, you can really start uh, adding adding interesting textures and and sonic soundscapes and stuff like that. Or you can you know, uh, bass music I think is is the genre that uh, that had the most kind of revolution to it, uh, just because uh, you know you took something that that basically with dub 
had a lot of uh, sub bass to it. And then all of a sudden you, you turn that into the main fixture of everything. And these guys just messed with it and turned it on its head and, 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 and took, took something that was kind of a really sleepy marijuana induced sound and turned it into the next big headbanger movement. So that was pretty impressive to see happen. And and that we'll talk more about that next week when Reynolds takes yet another look back. And in this one, he spent some time going back to ground he's already covered kind of with the perspective of time. So he's talking about this 1998 to 2002 period. And he's talking about, you know, the reigning genres were big beat, filter or French disco and fluffy trance. They were unabashedly poppy. Uh, you know, you had Fatboy Slim and the Chemical Brothers rule in the world with big beat. Um Filter Disco, obviously, Daft Punk. We also had Stardust, DJ Spiller, Mojo. Mojo, how do you say that? Mojo. Uh, mo mojo. 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 Mojo, okay. You got to give it a little bit of that German, uh, European mojo. <laughs> mojo, all right. And then, you know, you had Paul Van Dyke and ATB uh, ruling the trance scene. Madonna hopped on two successive techno bandwagons in, in uh, 1998 with the Ray of Light album. She, she emulated the trance sounds. And then with... Her album Music in 2000, she was all over the French house thing. And this was, you know, a time of massive dance festivals and super clubs. And Reynolds points out a time of hubris and complacency. Um, the, the, the music had slowed down. He said that the BPM slowed down in 1997 when drum and bass and GABA reached the outer limits of speed. And I had a friend, you know, one of my Miso friends that listens to the show and writes me about it. And he was like, Whoa, why is 200 beats per minute, you know, the outer limit? Because, you know, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie were doing these crazy things at 2, 300. And I think it was you that pointed out in the email chain. That's because nobody was dancing to bebop. <laughs> and, and there's a real hard limit to how fast music people can dance to. Um, you know, then he, then he talks about the across the board re rediscovery of house music, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. But, yeah, um, that, that's a that's a real important thing is that house music kind of came came and reintegrated uh, elements from everywhere everyone else. There was a, there was a long time that the purists kind of held, held house prisoner, and uh, there was kind of one big house sound. And if it wasn't like a if there wasn't a saxophone in there and uh, and 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 a, a sermon like guy telling you, you know, that Jack has a groove, then it that ain't really house. And then all of a sudden, house like became kind of for everything and and. You got guys like Basement Jacks integrating in a whole bunch of reggae sound and other sounds in the house. So it, it's again consolidation. Uh, house can mean a lot more things, and and uh, they figured out a lot of ways to commercialize house and get house out there because people were ready for it. So house really exploded again, and 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 then got eaten, swallowed up. The grooves from house got swallowed up by techno once again, and all the electro, the weird saw wave, uh, square wave synthesizer sounds from electro came into trance. It was it was a beautiful time of a whole bunch of uh, really weird things happening across, and it, it almost turned into a period where people were just like, okay, this is this is all just post post genre. Let's let's stop trying to identify, you know, where one thing starts and another thing ends. But of course. That never really happens because you got to put a label on everything. You got to know when you're going to go see a DJ. Uh, is this house? Is this techno? Because people don't want to show up to the wrong thing and be disappointed. Fair enough. And let's hear our next tune. This is Nathan Fake, The Sky Was Pink, The Holden Remix from 2004. Nathan Fakes, The Sky Was Pink from 2004, the Holden remix. Why did you pick this one? I thought it was a, a good kind of representation of the micro house dinner party sound that Simon Reynolds was kind of talking about, where, where he described it as a, almost what was it, audio haute cuisine or something like that. <laughs> exactly. So and, and you can yeah. you can also you there's still a little bit of a thump to it that Nathan Thake track uh, you know I've played that uh, at like 6 a.m. outdoors at a at a at a little per private festival just to trip people out and people were still kind of moving to it so it still got a little bit of a dance 
element to it, but you can definitely see how it's uh, very much kind of like more of a listening, a listening genre. It makes sense. And one thing that Reynolds talks about that's kind of interesting to me is that House had kind of painted itself into a corner by being so purist that it wasn't evolving, it wasn't changing. But suddenly all these people come into the scene from other places, from drum and bass and techno, who ironically, Reynolds says they were driven to house partly in response to the way drum and bass and techno had driven themselves down, quote, anorectic, self-desiccating dead ends of punitive purism and hair shirt minimalism. House signified a return to pleasure and pleasantness. And the irony is when they go into house, they just break all the rules. Like they're not in the mood to be purists anymore, even though they'd been kind of purists in their own scenes. And one sort of case study that he mentions is this guy, Matthew Herbert, who had um, been mentioned in the in the chapter he called, you know, fuck dance, let's art. Uh, he, he put out records as Radio Boy and Dr. Rocket. But then he goes house and renames himself um, Herbert, releases the 100 Pounds album and then the Around the House album, which is pretty hilarious conceptual thing because it sounds like a house record. It's danceable and everything. But then you realize he's disguised uh, music concrete in there because he's sampling household objects being used. So it's like, um, you know, what he, Riddle says is what he really did was fold the artiness into house's groove matrix. So um, yeah, it's just kind of a fun era of crossing genres and mixing things all together. And, and he says that producers like Daft Punk, Armin Van Helden, Green Velvet, and Basement Jacks had revitalized House by working in elements of hardcore rave aggression, industrial techno bombast, jungles marauding bass science, and art techno's twitchy glitchery. So pretty, pretty compelling mix. Yeah, there's you got an arsenal of all sorts of different things that you can pull from. And, you know, uh, it's not just the clubbers that were getting bored. It was, you know, a lot of these people who had been in the scene for 15, 20 years doing the same thing. They were also excited to do something different as well. And and it was just a time where people were more open to to exploring this this kind of stuff. You know, people were coming in. The, the, it was it was no longer a situation where you had to educate people up to a certain level. Everybody was already already familiar and and comfortable with uh, the crazy bass from Jungle. So you know if you had some Speed Garage or something like that, it wasn't going to freak them out. So you know everybody we're standing on the shoulders of giants at this point. We there's 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 a lot of different ways that we can go. And it kind of reminds me of the way grunge facilitated a handshake between the punk and heavy metal communities who had been bitter enemies. All these genres that had separated themselves through all these periods are suddenly cross-pollinating willy-nilly and people are going back and forth and DJs are playing these multiple sounds. I also thought it was interesting pointed out that a lot of the punters who'd uh, got or who get into, into house at this point had come along too late for house to have been the hot hip genre. And so in their experience, house was just sort of like handbag house, what the Tracys were into over there at that other club or over in the chill out room in the jungle club. It it wasn't ever hip or, you know, the innovative scene, but then they, all these people come back to it and rediscover it. So um, pretty interesting the way people's perspective on, on, on a sound changes depending on when they got into it and in their own personal history, not just the greater flow of, pers of musical history. Then he talks about the French scene, which of course is huge in this period. Daft Punk, of course, Bob Sinclair, iCube, Alan Brox, I don't know how B-R-A-X. Alan Brax. Alan Brax. All right. Um, they pioneered a monstrously popular yet hipster credible style of disco flavored house using the low pass filter sweep. I think we talked about that. Uh, in the house episode a couple weeks ago, but he, he's, he shouts out Stardust's 1998 track music sounds better with you, which um, Thomas Bengalter of Daft Punk collaborated on vocals by Benjamin Diamond from 1998. That was a love song to that revised revitalized ecstasy that was out there, the Mitsubishi E uh, and Armin Van Helden, New York DJ is also kind of driving the bus at this point tracks like you don't know me Um Huge, huge in the UK. He's the sole inheritor, according to Reynolds, of New York's rough and ready hip house tradition, which I've never heard rough and ready thrown at hip house before. Did that strike you as kind of a clang? Uh, I guess I kind of see what he's talking about. Like Armin van Helden definitely was able to straddle, straddle between kind of uh, 
you know, having these big diva lyrics and also having like a bit of a, a rough and ready uh, drum beat sound to it, I guess. I gotcha. And, and you know, sides out uh, Van Helden's remix of the Sneaker Pimps Spin Spin Sugar as a formative influence on Speed Garage. Then he spends a fair bit of time talking about Basement Jacks, who are Simon Ratcliffe and Felix Burton. And they said they probably did more than anyone to awaken outside interest in house in the late 90s. Um, you know, audacious hybrids like the ragged driven thug house of Jump and Shout. But ironically, these guys started out in the purest UK house scene along groups like Egypt Boys and Phase Action. But they got tired of the, quote, smug piety and decided to honor house's spirit by vandalizing its forms. So tracks like Fly Life and Set Your Body Free combined the untouchable sexiness and polish of American Deep House, but roughed it up with English aggression, attitude and noise. And they came out of Brixton and um, started out in, in the cramped and rowdy basement of a pub called the George Fourth. And they called themselves Punk House. And he says some of their tracks remind him so much of Prince that he thinks of them as kind of the genre formerly known as house and that they're prone to insanely detailed production, warped vocal multi-trackings and maximalist, not minimalist extravagance. So it's kind of funny they were trying to get away from house but ended up popularizing the genre by breaking down the barriers and not being purists about it. That's yeah, they're just another example of a group that took different elements from uh, from from jungle drum and bass and uh, speed garage and and everything else and just wrapped it back in and brought it back and then added uh, some some classic diva elements from New York and uh, Chicago house and just uh, made it all sound fresh because it's all about it was all about music that sounded fun and fresh and uh, and and basement jacks definitely definitely touched both of those really big. But at the same time as that's happening, there's kind of a retro movement happening in New York. The Body and Soul Club is open, founded by Danny Crivet and Francois Kevorkian, somebody we've been talking about since the 70s, uh, you know, in our first series in the Brewster and Broughton book. And they conceived the club as a restoration of the open-minded, eclectic ethos of pre-disco dance clubs like David Mancuso's Loft. They didn't mix tracks very much um they they wanted to program songs kind of like mancuso had evolved to but they did like to use a technique called crossover which cuts out whole frequency bands out of tracks so it can take something like um the rolling stones miss you their big disco hit from the late 70s cut out the the mid-range uh and some of the trouble and you get a completely different sounding track but kind of the net effect of that was that reynolds says it effectively transformed the new york history prehistory of house into a heritage industry a la jazz in new orleans which that's never a good thing for innovation that's it's great for business and great for fun and good to recognize you know uh the artistry of the past but not yeah, at, the, at this point that classic house sound was a snapshot um you know you you knew what was what what the sound was made up of and uh and any, on any given night you could go to a place and you could hear that that house sound because it was a packaged and commoditized thing and new york definitely uh you know uh, made a made a big thing out of out of being not pioneers of pioneers of bringing back that classic house uh, that that new york house sound but uh i mean anywhere that you went you'd have djs that were playing this classic that that, that classic traditional house again with the with the organs with pianos with the saxophones and just uh just something straight out of the the mid 80s with a lot of 70s callbacks and let's take a quick sponsor break and when we come back we'll try to carry on into the new millennium and so in this period you know going into the 2000s like in 2001 music magazine sounded an alarm that that um the scene was big at the time, but they pointed out that the um, it was a, a time to worry that the only growth was in sales of chill out compilations. It meant people were staying at home uh, listening on, on their headphones more so than they were going out to the clubs that throughout the 90s, the rave scene had been refreshed by wave after wave of new fans. And that wasn't happening, that there was two competing trends they were kind of losing out to. Uh, there was the whole garage rock post-punk revival of groups like the Strokes and the White Stripes and the Hives that 
had reinvigorated rock and roll with a fashion sense that it honestly hadn't had in ages, uh, since the early 80s, probably. And so a lot of the hip young kids got into that. And then on the dance floors, they're getting undercut by hip hop producers like Timbaland or the Neptunes, who have succeeded in merging R&B and hip hop seamlessly. And you know, are just putting out banging tracks. And we've talked about how, you know, Speed Garage and UK Garage were kind of a reaction to Timbaland. Uh, and then, you know, also got the whole Dirty South thing with Outkast and Lil Jean and, you know, all this stuff. So a lot of competition there. He points out that dance record sales in the UK dropped from 13% of the market in 2000 to 7% in 2004. So a massive crash, basically. Mega clubs like Cream closed. The Great Gate crasher event scales back to once a month instead of weekly. Um, three out of the five big dance magazines in the UK uh, shut down in 2003, 2004. The collective circulation dropped from 250,000 in the late 90s uh, down um, to, it doesn't give a figure for the, the consolidated figure, but it does say that MixMag was down from 100,000 in the late 90s to 40,000 in 2012. So I'm guessing probably the whole market was probably 80,000, 90,000. Uh, in that point. Of course, magazines have since been completely pillaged by the internet. Yeah, it, it's, it, this is kind of a whole situation where, where societal factors are playing a, a big role in the demise of everything. The internet's come up, so you've got music sales that have completely gone away. You've you've gotten rid of uh, the ability for tastemakers to kind of come and and establish you know the next big thing because everything's suddenly become decentralized. The magazines are going down in flames because, you know, why would you read a magazine when you have the internet? And, uh, you know, on top of that, a lot of the, the, the big clubs are being killed because of gentrification. And it's not just a, a popularity issues, you know, the cops and municipalities and the pencil pushers were out for that real estate. And they were, they were killing a lot of these clubs, you know, some of them, some of them deserved it. You know, obviously there's a lot of drug use and stuff like that going on, but I think a, a lot of it was a pretense to uh, to push these clubs out of the downtown core and turn these places there's much more valuable real estate into condos, which is basically what happened to Toronto's entire downtown uh, underground scene is all of the legendary clubs just got shut down on noise and drug violation pretenses and then turned into high rise condos. And that was uh, that was uh, really devastating to to our scene. Yeah, and it happened all over the place. Like in New York City, the Bloomberg administration was carrying on the policies of the Giuliani administration, even ramping it up, um, you know, zealously enforcing the ancient and totally uh, um, anachronistic cabaret law that meant you had to pay, pay buy a very expensive license to allow dancing in the club. And seemingly there was, I don't know if, I bet somebody re can research this with Freedom of Information Act and, and show that it was coordinated, but there was a seemingly uncoordinated crackdown all across the United States with state and city local regulations busting promoters um, all over the place and, and cracking down on raves and club shows. And in the and in the music rigs context, you know, electronic had been the big push in 97, 98. A couple of artists did really well, but like Fatboy Slim never became as big as the Chemical Brothers, and there was no sort of sequel to that and and mtv's show had a special show called amp that was reflected that they were behind the scene and they were pushing it but then the ska revival and and the swing revival which was a totally ridiculous 90s phenomenon how um, embarrassing is it that we were pushed aside for ska and swing <laughs> for the squirrel nut zippers i don't want to totally just ska because there's an interesting history there and, and oddly enough that genre continues on but that swing revival and i love swing but that was not a swing revival that was brian setzer from the stray cats playing acdc songs with acoustic instruments it was nightmarish the squirrel nut zippers etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know he kind of argues that american kids wanted to dance they just didn't want to do it to dance music um but you did have hipsters getting into drum and bass daft punk and basement jacks uh, and the big beat and trance DJs were building bigger crowds at the bigger shows. But something like Discovery by Daft Punk only sold half a million in the States when it was this global massive hit everywhere else just because it could get zero radio support. Basement Jack's Rudy album sold less than 250,000 in the States. And meanwhile, there's this sort of double whammy because Electrona becomes the dominant form of music and advertising, partly because the people booking the ads 
are in these coastal cities and are a little bit hipper to the scene, but it creates this, what Reynolds calls a combination of overexposure and lack of real success that left U.S. dance culture in an unhappy limbo. It wasn't underground and it wasn't mainstream. So, um, you know, kind of a tough period for the whole scene in general. Yeah, it was definitely a bit of a strange limbo, but it was the, the only positive thing that I can say is that because the mainstream never managed to kind of get going with everything, there wasn't, I feel like the UK really had a collapse because uh, there was there was mainstream appeal to it. We looked, we saw what happened when, when Jungle went mainstream and then everybody kind of left. And fortunately, Jungle still had that hard underground center that kept it going but for the most part when a when the mainstream comes along and picks you up up a musical genre as a new toy and then puts it down sets it aside like the it's ruined after that so because they the the mainstream never came in and ruined the underground rave scene in north america uh we were able to kind of just continue along happy with our thin margins and our, uh, you know, our 300 to 800 person events and not really uh, give too much of a damn as to as to how big or how small we were being represented on music channels and stuff like that. Yeah. And as we'll see next week, uh, the time will come for the, the triumph of EDM, which, as you say, is always a double edged sword. And like I was mentioning, the technology had, had made some big advances and you had virtual studio programs like Fruity Loops uh, and Reason. You also had the Ableton Live, uh, which able, enabled DJs to do whole digital sets, but still do all the mixing that you could do um, with a traditional turntable. And this, he says, resulted in dense, very detailed productions, the quote, audio trickle sound where people are varying the beat in every set of bars um, and new things are happening. So it's it's great headphone music, but maybe not, you know, the banging uh, dance floor stuff. And also sometimes maybe the artist would forget to have a melody <laughs> in there or, you know, a central theme. There's so many little details going on that the big picture stuff uh, maybe is being de- neglected a little bit. Then he spends quite a bit of time talking about the whole micro house genre. And it's time for our next cue. We already did play a micro house track. So let's hear uh, the other genre that he it's unfair to say tries to pump up but spends a fair bit of time talking about this is i'm the guy lessons in break core i have a computer i have some break beats i can speed them up and make some music out of it That was I'm the guy, lessons in break core. Why'd you pick that one? Uh, you know, I only get 30 seconds to kind of try to cram in an entire genre's uh, ethos. So what what better track than a, a track called Lessons in Break Core to give our listeners a lesson in break core? Fair enough, fair enough. And break core, as opposed to house and, and micro house, Reynolds says it's even kind of a repost. Am I saying that right? The, the fire back. No, R-I-P-O-S-T-E. Anyway, that's the word. Um, that it's got all the rude and cheesy street sounds. It's got you know jungle influences, GABA, Miami bass, gangster rap. It's all in there. And that, ironically, it's kind of an offshoot of the old intelligence dance music by way of drill and bass. That people like Square Pusher and Luke Vibert and Aphex Twin had been sort of tongue-in-cheek parodying hardcore as it evolved into jungle. But then people like Mike Paradina, a.k.a. Uzik, um, with his Planet Moo label, is is all over this stuff. And it, and it um, you know, he's putting out acts like Venetian Stairs and Shetmat, the charmingly named Shetmat. And um, they go kind of full circle and, and kind of have a revival of the hardcore thing without the hardcore popularity or success. And you said something to me that breakcore didn't sound that great on big club sound systems. Well, I mean, it's just, it's uh, it, it's one of those ones that if you spend too much time hearing on a big sound system, you're going to get, you know, at least a headache and at most tinnitus. So it's, it was one of those, one of those ones where as a hardcore promoter, 
in in my scene, we would we would be very sparingly book break core. Like we brought knife hand chop in. He's one of the Tiger Beat guys. And uh, and so you you could you could do it you could book it but the the guys who were the break core promoters in different cities even like a big city like Toronto in Canada, uh, you know these are parties fifty people would show up it's just not a a high demand scene uh, for 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 going out and, and doing it live because it really is just too much of a a wall of sonic noise like uh, the the interesting thing about it uh, is that. Breakcore always kind of started out being uh, all of the two experimental jungle and hardcore sounds kind of mashed together, and you could go all over the place uh, underneath the Breakcore label. Uh, uh, but over the years, from from basically 2000 to 2010, around 2010, guys like Kid 606, once again from the Tiger Beat label, uh, and uh, some several of these other guys who established themselves as this 220 beat per minute break core insanity slowed down to the point where they actually were kind of making micro house melodic techno oh. stuff because the really experimental stuff ended up just kind of becoming this slower distorted techno with interesting uh, like again those sonic soundscapes and 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 that's where the experimental stuff ended up being. So it's kind of uh, it was it was kind of a funny evolution. And and Simon Reynolds, to his credit, said that you know there's there's a weird thread that you can pull between breakcore and micro house, where where there are elements of of sameness to it. And they kind of ended up merging to a certain degree with certain artists and labels, kind of meeting in the middle. Yeah, it's interesting. And Tiger Beat Six was from San Francisco. And Reynolds says that, you know, they combined kind of the lo-fi and do-it-yourself aspects of punk rock and were bringing that into um, the the dancing. And it's interesting, like, singles like Kid 606's Luke Viebert Can Kiss My Indie Punk White Boy Ass or Jay Lester's Marcus Pop Can Kiss My Redneck Ass, that tells you that they were very focused on these styles and group and artists that they were, uh, you know, explicitly trying to overthrow. So it's not really a surprise that they go back to that kind of, you know, I think they protested too much that they were violently opposed to that stuff because it was actually kind of where they were coming from. Yeah, I mean, all of the all of the 2000 stuff is uh, kind of aggro for aggro's sake. And then around, I'd say, like 2007, 2008, half the album is kind of the break, the break core that's being done for the purists and then the experimental stuff that kind of gets back into how Aphex Twin had his ambient works that were surprisingly soft and 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 friendly techno and uh, so it's uh, again like it's pretty funny how how some of the some of the hardest stuff from the hardest artist then the hardest artist ends up creating some of the most sonically uh, gentle music that ends up being put out and and meanwhile sort of the French house scene produces this kind of rocker scene you got acts like Justice uh, on the Ed Banger label, get it, Ed Banger. Um, uh, Alter Ego, an act that's been around for a long time, did, did the track Rocker. So this sort of interest in the big riffs comes back in the European scene at the same time. And you also have this weird um, fad called Shuffle, uh, which is influenced by 70s glam rock, and it's frequently in 6-8 time. And so it's it's there was some compilations, the Shuffle Fieber uh, series that... Uh, it was pretty fun to go back and and, and check out, but um, kind of a cul-de-sac in, in musical history. So let's get on to the London scene and what was going on with the descendants of UK Garage. We talked about the you know brief reign of popularity and then the downfall in part because of you know police harassment and also violence within the scene. Um, and you know so after 2001, that scene kind of goes back underground. And in the north of the UK, you've got Baseline House. Uh, and then in London, you get this reactionary uh, style of called Urban or Funky House, which purges two-step of its novel features, gets rid of the MCs, the rewinds, all that stuff, and starts bringing back live music and, and divas and all that stuff. And that's in part a reaction to a new genre that comes out, which is grime. And what's different about grime? Well, I mean, it, it grime kind of yeah. Like once once the MCs start getting pushed out of Speed Garage, uh, they, they basically have to start doing their own thing. And I mean, you had a lot of Speed Garage artists that were uh, kind of uh, experimenting with a darker, slower sound that eventually kind of turns into uh, you know 
uh, it's kind of ha- a two-step garage, and it's kind of dub. So they just started calling it dubstep. And uh, you had a lot of uh, MCs moving over into dubstep and rapping over that. And that's kind of where grime really started to pick up was that the MCs on pirate radio stations were rapping over this new uh, kind of uh, bastard offshoot of, of garage. And uh, then they just took it and, and, you know, just ran, ran the gamut on it, just turned it into their own UK style of hip hop. I was, uh, you know, uh, the most interesting thing I think that's come out of UK hip hop historically. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, despite its ambitions, never quite conquered the world, but it did have some artists like Dizzy Rascal and Wiley who um, did sign with major labels. There are several hit records. Um, and it's interesting because they didn't just limit themselves to sort of dubstep style productions. And as always, dubstep is not what later became famous as dubstep. This is a this is not bro step. This isn't Skrillex. This is a darker, more experimental kind of sound. But somebody like Dizzy Rascal was kind of throwing the whole kitchen sink. He had the entire tradition of electronic dance music at his disposal. And so you'll be listening to these grime tracks and they'll throw in all kinds of cheesy hardcore stuff and and jungle stuff and drum and bass stuff and um really interesting and 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 i do think historically significant and and also they had a different rapping style and i think that's what made them sort of globally noteworthy is that the jamaican influence uh in the black communities in the uk really made itself felt and also they had mastered rapping at faster speeds than american rappers had really ever rapped at because of coming out of the jungle um and dance hall scenes so you know really interesting stuff but not quite dance music it 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 takes sort of the same turn that hip-hop did you know hip-hop originally starts out in our ballywick back in uh the brewster and broughton book in the first series but as it becomes a listening music and a driving around in your car music and an album music, it's less and less, less of a dance music. And I think the same thing happens with grime. Meanwhile, dubstep is continuing on in its own unique direction. It's not ever swallowed entirely by the grime scene. And so you've got producers like Groove Chronicles, Burial, Dim2, Steve Gurley, who are doing what? Reynolds calls a moody and minimal garage mutation. With They dropped the songs and the pop fizzy euphoria in favor of empty space. And he's kind of struggling with dubstep. And he's like at one point going, what is the big idea of dubstep? I've, I've never had that explained um, adequately to him. To, to, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a weird one because it, and he says as well, it's barely it barely constitutes us. Well, I guess he said this for grime as well is that it barely constitutes a an underground dance music uh, scene because it's so, so weird and slow. And that's that's a kind of an interesting factor on it is that when dubstep split off, it was so slow and dark and weird that there there wasn't really a, a scene, a place to play these records. And it was actually women who who gave dubstep it's uh it's big kind of lift up and 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 bring out into the world there was uh, sarah lockhart she was a a, a, pro, a station programmer at rinse fm she did forward at the velvet room and that was the first big dubstep night that that really started to uh bring people in and uh and and led the genre into something that you know started out as 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 very much just kind of listening music and turned it into something that was a bit of a head bop and then ended up you know three or four years later as a head bang and uh you know without without her i don't know if anything really would have kind of if it, if it would have evolved into that because it's definitely the the early the earliest stuff before bro step before guys like rusco uh basically transformed the sound into a more uh dance friendly movement you know thing uh, it it needed somebody it needed somebody to champion it so yeah and it's an interesting scene because it, it's it's super hyper local it's it's from uh uh and the outer suburbs of South London, not the truly outer suburbs, but kind of the middle ring of outer suburbs uh, in South London. Um, you know, and you had people like Plastician and Burial that, that are all within a few blocks of each other working in the same record stores. And it's, and, you know, going back as somebody who was first exposed to this stuff 
via Skrillex. That's the first time I heard dubstep. And when you go back and hear Burial, I'm like, kind of like, where's the wobble bass? Where's the where's all the trademark sounds? Where's that headbanging vibe? It's very different stuff. But ironically, Reynolds does talk about digital mystics who um, have a variation of dubstep that he calls half step. But that's where that wobble bass starts coming in. Is that Am I totally wrong yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. No, basically like around uh I think it's around 2003, 2004 like you can really track it from from 2000 to 2006 as it, it goes from something that very much sounds like uh just uh the next evolution of of straight up ragged dub music into something a bit more different that's recognizable as, you know, a forefather of the bass scene in the US and worldwide and uh, that wobble is is one of the key components where they go from and and also just where they go from that sub bass as as a rule as a locked in rule to all of a sudden they start messing around with some of the more mid bass sounds and that's where you can that's where you get that skrillex growl because you're you're no longer just concentrating on the absolute lowest frequencies you can get you're allowed to mess around now a way way more up the range yeah, get into that mid-range classic rock guitar uh, distortion range. And um, yeah, Skrillex is going to go to town. And we'll talk about that next week as Reynolds does one last chapter catching up on uh, the decade. I guess he goes from about 2007 to 2015 in the next chapter and, and brings us pretty close to up to date. And we're going to hear about uh, you know Daft Punk at Coachella, the rise of the EDM festivals, the rise of Skrillex and Bro Step. So kind of the pinnacle of human uh, cultural evolution we've been working towards all this time. Ryan, I look forward to discussing it with you next time. Should be fun. Should be fun. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to discuss the final, final, final chapter of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, which documents the massive mainstream success of electronic dance music in the 2010s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.